Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. And welcome to another Saltivation discussion where we are joined by Brian Schwamm of WTP Advisors. Brian has over 30 years of experience in international taxation and will walk us through some of the nuances of non-US taxation and how it overlaps with state tax. Brian, thank you for being here today. Thank you, Meredith. Uh, my pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation. And of course, Saltivation's Judy Vorndren. Hello, Judy. Hello, Meredith. <laughs> Brian, I want to start with you. You have carved out your career to focus on a niche area of taxation, being in the international tax arena, much like us salt professionals. We find that not many practices outside of large firms have an international tax resource or really know where to begin when it comes to addressing anything outside of U.S. federal tax. So how did you come to focus on international tax? And then what brought you to WTP? Great question and and hopefully an interesting answer. (laughs) Uh, I, uh, you know, I like probably most of you, I started in the big four where, uh, I did, I was a generalist and I did everything, uh, for the first two years of my career, a few years into my career, uh, I was asked to specialize in an area. So I chose international. I had the choice of international or state and local, and I chose international. Oh, thanks a lot. Yeah, I know. It seemed more. It seemed a lot more uh, like there was more. There was more to it, uh, is what it seemed like at the time. And uh, the laws were different back then, and as a result, there was a lot more to it. Uh, I would maybe not say the same thing today, but at the time, that was definitely the case. And so, for the next oh, let's say fifteen years uh, or more, uh, I I focused specifically on international tax. And international can really be broken down into outbound international tax. That's U.S. businesses that are uh, expanding and doing business outside the U.S. And then there's also inbound, which is foreign headquartered businesses that are either investing in or expanding into the U.S. And within both of those categories, You've got your large companies, your middle market companies, and your startup companies that may be small in size. And the issues may be the same in all cases, but they're, you know, the magnitude of the issues may not be the same, but the issues are there. And the smaller the company gets, the, the more that there seems to be a lack of compliance with what needs to be going on. Uh, so when I left the big four, I decided to focus on the the middle market and the lower uh, the lower end of the middle market and the uh, mom and pop type businesses, uh, really. What I found out the day after I left the big four was that CPA firms all over the country needed somebody with my skill set because they didn't have anybody in-house uh, and they couldn't afford to you know, introduce their client to one of the big four or one of the national firms that had the resources. So I've been acting as a a bolt-on resource or surge resource for all these firms for the last 15 years. And as a result, you know, I can apply what I learned and, and what I applied in the big four to large companies to these smaller companies. I can help these 
firms service and keep their clients and not expose them to losing the clients to a, to a larger firm that, that could be more full service. And as a result, uh, the CPA is happy. They get to keep their client. I'm happy. I've got a good stable of work and uh, the client's happy because they're being served by who they want to be served by. That's kind of like us, the same thing, because there's not a lot of salt resources at the regional firm level outside the big four. So it's very interesting. Your, your path is very similar to ours. And my path was completely accidental because I didn't, <laughs> uh, I didn't realize that that would be the case until, well, when I left, well, after leaving Ernst & Young, I was at KPMG for a couple of years. And when I left there, the individual who had been the managing partner of the office I was in, he had left in the intervening time period. And the day after I left, I just shot him an email saying, hey, here's what I'm doing now. And he's like, let's have lunch. We can use you. And that was the start of like something I never even imagined would happen. And I don't even go after that, actually. So it's interesting that you've, I, and that's how we know each other because we used you. And I didn't even know we were using you as a white label resource with our international tax team at the former regional firm. I was the head of the national salt practice. So that's kind of funny. And then we found each other a different way and then come to find out you had actually done some projects for some clients of mine and I didn't <laughs> even know it was you. <laughs> I thought that was pretty fascinating, actually. Yeah, um, it is. And the tax world is extremely small, right? As we all know. Right. You'd, you'd mentioned that, you know, you've worked with, or, you know, there's the giant companies that have issues, even kind of down to the small mom and pop. So what factors cause, you know, on this, and, you know, kind of in this question, I'll talk about kind of the inbound stuff that causes a foreign corporation having a taxable presence in the U.S. Great question. And one that has many different answers, uh, depending upon the uh, location of the foreign corporation that's beginning to do business in the U.S. So we have to distinguish between whether that corporation is in a country that has a tax treaty with the United States or whether it's in a non-treaty country. So an example of a non-treaty country would be just about any country in South America, for example. So if a Brazilian company is carrying on business in the U.S., under the definition found in our tax code, then you know, they become subject to U.S. tax on some portion of their income. Okay? And it doesn't take a lot to be carrying on business. Um, and, and so those non-treaty countries are probably more akin to the state rules because the other set of companies would be from treaty countries where we have a tax treaty. And the tax treaty has pretty standard language describing what's called a permanent establishment. And the permanent establishment is a higher threshold than carrying on business. And if a company ends up having a permanent establishment, then they become subject to federal, uh, U.S. federal tax on their U.S. source income that's related to that trader business that's got the effectively connected income. So then how would you say a lot of, you know, non-U.S. businesses are generating income from the states? Is it, you know, online sales? Is it they're a distribution channel? They're a manufacturer? Like where, like how does that kind of revenue happen? 
Yeah, so it's kind of across the board. You know, obviously there's more and more online, uh, like, you know, e-commerce activity going on where foreign companies could be selling directly to U.S. consumers, you know, individuals, or they could be selling to U.S.-based companies uh, who may be reselling the product or using the product in their own business. Uh, and again, that's, that's one channel. You know, most of the time, if a foreign manufacturing company is uh, they may end up setting up a, a subsidiary in the U.S. to act as a distributor of their product. They don't have to do that. Sometimes they do it directly from their own, you know, foreign entity, uh, and they you know, they don't have. They're not storing inventory. They're just shipping in. They don't think they really have anything here. They don't need anything here. Uh, that's you know that's one way that uh, they generate revenue in the U.S. Uh, like I said, the other way is to have their own fully owned subsidiary. They could sell through independent dealers and distributors. I think we have some clients in common that have been doing that, selling through dealers. That's pretty common. Then there's the business to consumer line, which uh, may go through a dealer or it may not. It may go like just right off the internet directly to customers. Right. Somehow off a ship at the port into the so, you know, I, you know, I think about years ago when, remember, Toyota had to put plants here and Honda put plants here because they were foreign car manufacturers and we were by America, right? We were, Detroit was blowing up. Like, can you speak to that kind of those issues? Like, there was a choice by some foreign entities to choose to build in America. To Was it a political thing? So they would not lose traction of um, getting customers in the U.S. market. And that's why they put plants here. I think there was an element of politics associated with that, yes, okay. because there was a time, and I don't remember, I don't recall exactly the point in time, but uh, it was like, oh, we're sending these dollars to Germany or to Japan or these other auto manufacturers. And so if they had a plant, like if there was like Honda Motor Company of America, uh, now you're not, uh, you're not buying a car from you know, Honda Japan, you're buying it from Honda US. And so people could feel better about, oh, I'm, I'm buying something that was really made in America. Well, was it really made in the US? You know, parts of it were, parts may have been shipped in and it was assembled in the US, but it wasn't necessarily fully engineered and manufactured in the US. But enough of it where, and where, you know, people I think felt better about it than they, they did when it was just being imported as a, a final car from uh, Japan. Tariffs may have had something to do with that as well. I'm not sure. But sometimes when you import parts, the customs duty on those parts is completely different than when you import a finished automobile. And the import-export system kind of covers some of the duties, similar to like a sales tax. It's a duty on the item being the value of the item coming in. And we have to incorporate that into the cost of the goods sold, right? When we end up buying it as an end user. So yes. it's, it's sort of like a sales tax or a VAT, a, a duty, right? That, but well, that, Yeah, but a duty is also kind of like a trade barrier. Yes. Where they're you know, trying to protect the U.S. business. So, you know, you know, you can't bring in, a, you can't buy a car from Japan because it's going to have a 20% duty added onto it. So it makes it not non-competitive in the market in terms of parts. Okay. And then is that you'll normally hand, handled like at the border? It's not like I'm paying the duties as a, I, I, I don't, how does that work in terms of how people well, the, pay it? 
well, when the importer imports the goods into the mm-hmm. U.S., whoever that is, it's not going to be a person that's buying the car. It's going to be probably either, you know, Honda Motor Company of Japan or some dealer in the U.S. One of the, probably it's going to be the former. They have to pay the duty to the government to, to bring it into the country. And it's interesting because you don't have a resale exemption in that instance, even though the end user is me, I'm going to ultimately buy the car, but the, it's the dealer that pays the duty. Um, and then that, and then it ultimately gets wrapped into the purchase price that I pay. And then I have pay a sales tax on that. So right. it really does ratchet up. It's basically tax on tax. Right. And it's, it's to protect us business. And, and most of these companies that have set up us facilities, you know, they're not in Detroit. They're not in the North. They're, they're not in the Rust Belt. They're down in, down South where there's no unions and uh, labor is cheaper and, and they were able to do it. You know, there's a large Mercedes plant in Alabama. There's, you know, there's, there's a number of large auto investments uh, around the Atlanta area. So it's all in that part of the country. And uh, so there may have been a labor savings, you know, labor, there's a lot of labor related taxes in a lot of foreign countries that we don't have here. Well, and then I'm just thinking as well, like, if you think about all this, I mean, business is business, but business gets affected by taxes and then taxes cause business to repurpose itself or whatever, restructure, revise in order to streamline operations or cut costs in order to minimize the tax impact. So there's a lot of things you have to think about if you're a multinational business. Exactly right. And the, ta- and the yeah, and the excise taxes and all that, they're high. I mean, they could be 20% or 30%, right? So you're not talking like 8%, 1%. It's, it's a significant cost mm-hmm. to manage. But, but, but I will guess, and this is a guess because I don't know for, for a fact, that these auto companies set up these plants in the U.S. to avoid customs. Yeah, I bet. Because, you know, years ago I had a client that made small engines and outboard motors uh, for boats. And if they imported those engines, the duty was relatively high. If they imported the parts and assembled the parts and then sold the engine, they avoided the duties completely. <laughs> so it's a bit of a rate arbitrage. Interesting. Yeah. And well, it's protectionism. Sure. Uh, we're all familiar with Harley Davidson, right? Made in yes. America, made yes. in America bike. Well, the ones that they sell in Brazil are made in Brazil. Because if they try to import a finished motorcycle into Brazil, there'd be some ridiculous duty added onto the top of it, the value, make it completely non-saleable to a customer. But if they import the parts into Brazil and assemble them in Brazil, thus creating jobs in Brazil for uh, you know people that need work, then the duties don't exist. So it. Uh, they work in a lot of different ways to either promote local business or to protect other existing businesses. But that's kind of the nature of that whole, you know, duty and trade war. Uh, and then this whole concept of who we have treaties with and who we don't have treaties with, right? Where we play nice in the sandbox with some other countries and we don't play so nice with others. So uh, that is a very interesting issue that you bring, brought up at the very beginning, which is, do we have a treaty or not? First question to look at. Because then there's beneficial tax treatment if there is a trade relationship with another country. And I think that that kind of 
that perception with countries that have treaties kind of spins down all the way to federal tax and state and local tax. They misapprehend that the treaties are not universal, right? They're just federal to federal government, not state government and so forth. I think there's some misnomers of that. Oh, we have a treaty, therefore everything's exempt or the fed, you know, the U.S. federal government doesn't care about it. And of course, that ends up being an issue for me is our state right. governments do because we don't always follow the treaty. Right. So, it, you know, it's interesting because the non-treaty country, I think the federal and state treatment is going to be the same. Yes. Yes. So, so what's bad for federal is kind of easier for state. Yeah. Federal and state are married up. Yes. And if, and if there's a treaty, which is good for federal and allows the foreign company to avoid potentially paying U.S. tax, uh, federal tax, now you've got a mismatch between federal and state, Correct. which creates, you know, probably a, what I would call a, a nightmare scenario for, for companies. Well, and I think it's misknown, especially in the small and medium business market, in the um, regional firm level especially, they have no idea that those treaty exemptions exist or don't exist, and they automatically put them towards the states. And there's there's a misrepresentation by the practitioner who just doesn't understand the state tax consequences at the medium tier level. Well, and much too like public law 86-272, a treaty is only going to apply to income tax. So we still have, you know, you sell in, and especially now with Wayfair having gone in, you know, over two years ago, if you are a non-U.S. company, you sell more than, you know, 100,000 or 200 things into a certain state, you now have, the state doesn't care where you sold from under Wayfair, you you have a sales tax and treaties just don't exist regardless. Good point. No, yeah, they they only extend to income tax. And we're just such a great market with 335 million Americans. I mean, we buy a lot of stuff. So, and we like to buy it reasonably priced, or should I say cheaper? <laughs> Which is why you have a lot of import issues where there's some confusion amongst uh, what the compliance duties are when you're importing out of country into country. Well, and it's funny, there's like a boutique in, in you know, Denver that I really like going to. And I was, you know... I buy like this certain brand and I decided to go directly to this website once just to see what else they had. So I bought some stuff and they didn't have sales tax on my invoice. So of course, like I reached out to them and I was like, oh, hey, you know, by the way, you should be charging me sales tax, blah, 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 blah. Went into this like, not diatribe, because, you know, let's be honest, I'm going to like a customer service rep. She's like, oh, you know, well, thank you. That's really, that's really helpful. Let me see what I can find out. And she's like, oh, we're a Canadian company, so it doesn't matter. I was like, <laughs> well, da, 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 da. and she's like, oh, okay, I'll pass that on. And then they're just probably like, <laughs> hopefully yeah, they will figure it out. <laughs> right. But I, coincidentally enough, I bought from them recently again, and there was still no sales tax. So I was, should be like, hey, by the way, maybe you're their only U.S. customer. Maybe me and the boutique that I buy it from. Yeah, yeah, that's a huge issue that I find to be. A lot of Canadians do perceive like we don't, the states aren't going to catch them. And I think that's going to really change next year. I think a lot of Americans perceive that the states aren't going to catch them. Yes. <laughs> that, yeah, we, let's just not isolate that to like non-US based businesses. That, that's a good car. We don't want to, we don't yes. want to make our friends to the North mad, but yes, I think that's a very good, uh, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think that's something that we share in common because 
like I just said, a lot of people that live in this country don't think the states are going to catch them. Well, in the, you know, the international section of the Internal Revenue Code, CPAs that I often deal with, they don't think of those as rules, but rather as guidelines. Because they don't think the IRS is going to catch anybody. So it's the same. You know, we, we kind of fight the same battle, the uphill battle, like, oh, this isn't real. Oh, transfer pricing? Oh, we don't have to worry about transfer pricing. Uh, that's, we don't have to. You know, let the IRS catch us. Well, so then what happens? What are the penalties if you get caught? And like, what do you have to do that you're going to get caught on? So like, what are the rules you have to follow? And if you don't follow the rules, what are the consequences if you get caught? Sure. Well, the rules are, are you know, there's thousands of pages of regulations on what the rules are. So I won't go into that. But uh, the penalties can be, you know, either 20% of the tax that you didn't pay that you should have paid. If it's a certain level, it goes up to 40% uh, of the underpayment at, at another level. And the way you avoid all that penalty uh, exposure is to simply have a transfer pricing study when you file your return. If you have the ret- if you have that study done, the IRS can still come in and adjust your transfer pricing, but there'll be no penalties because you did attempt to look at it. So we had a client that said, oh, look, we did a transfer pricing study like six years ago. We were never audited. We're not, we, then they stopped doing it. And then they got audited. And so instead of like paying us a fee of, let's say, $10,000 to do a study, they paid us $90,000 to fight with the IRS and get the IRS adjustments away. And it was a huge amount of money, I'm, assur- I'm suiting, assuming, because if it's, they're going to disallow all those deductions for the costs. If you don't have a valid right. study. Or they're going to attribute, or they were going to attribute income to the U.S. by imputing a royalty on the foreign sub that it should have paid the U.S. All these things that if they would have done a study, the IRS wouldn't have that chalkboard to just draw up and do whatever it wants. Right. One of like one of the first things Judy and I kind of did together is we wrote an article that was like, it's it's expensive to be non-compliant. Like that like if you can get ahead of it, you know, I know you don't want to pay us 20 grand now, but you're going to pay us 80 grand later. Plus you're going to pay someone else a hundred grand. So, but then I um, think that's what works. Honestly, like nobody wants to pay to get in front of it. I find sometimes like it's expensive. They're starting up. They don't want to think about it. They got business to run. And I think that's nothing compared to what you could pay if you get it wrong. And I find it interesting. I make more money on the people who did it wrong because I've got to remediate it everywhere, right? And I've got to kind of put a plan in place and it costs a lot of money to remediate. And, but it sort of feels like the culture. And, you know, my husband, we, we have a new puppy and the dog trainer, which we started before COVID and haven't continued because it got canceled, um, said you have to reinforce an animal with positive reinforcement, right? Not negative reinforcement. You want to make them, but we have the system of punitive reinforcement as opposed to you should just file your taxes and, that's the law. But there is a culture in America and maybe elsewhere as well that is not about voluntary compliance. And I think that's a fascinating cultural difference I have seen, although some countries like the UK are known to be very compliant. What do you what do you make of that? Like, but is that why we don't have treaties with some of them? Because they're not very compliant versus others that are more willful mm. to be compliant? No, I, I, I don't believe that's the reason why. And, and uh, I'll give you an example. In most Latin countries, including Mexico, we have a treaty with, the tax advisors are almost like agents of the tax. Authority. Okay. 
like they have to sign like there's a box on a on a Mexican tax return they have to check a box that says there's a transfer pricing study been done check yes or no and I've reviewed it check yes Ooh. or no so we don't have any we're not agents of the of the tax authorities here at all uh, but that that's often and certainly in Latin America that's often the case like they they're like oh I can't take that position because you know, the, the Hacienda, which is the Mexican tax authority, they'll, they'll be upset with me. I can't do that. So uh, it's got no relation to whether we have a treaty or not. It's just, it's just the culture. And I think, well, the other thing that I've seen over the last 10 years is, well, and I'm dating myself, when I started in public accounting, you know, if you were the auditor, you did the tax. Yes. Everything. And, you know, after Sarbanes-Oxley, whenever that was, like 2004, I believe. Uh, now that's often split. If I'm the auditor, I don't do any tax work. Somebody else does the tax work. And then the auditor says, well, I have to review what they did because I have to sign your audit report. And so client pays, you know, extra fees to have it be done by separate yes. parties. That's funny. That's kind of how our firm got started was provision work. So we were, we, because of Sarbanes-Oxley, we were really good at provisions and we were that intermediary between the big four and our clients because they couldn't do both. So they needed us to do that right. middle part and we still do. <laughs> no, I was going to just say back to that example about pay me now or pay me later. And I'm a, I'm a little bit older maybe, but when I was a kid, there was a, there was a Fram oil filter commercial. And I, I remember know, Fram, I yes. Either of you. And there's the guy, you know, the mechanic has got his head in the, you know, in the engine and the, and the guy whose car it is, is like, oh, well, you know, is there a problem? And he, and he holds up the oil filter and says, you know, you can pay me now and buy this Fram oil filter or pay me later. This is a main bearing job, about $200. And this, this is a Fram oil filter, it's about $4. If the guy who owns this car had put four bucks into one of these when he had his oil change, chances are he, he wouldn't be putting 200 bucks into one of these. Well, choice is yours. You can pay me now or pay me later. Sometimes people would rather pay for the new engine down the road because they didn't want to worry about it. Yeah, no, it's, and, it, and that's what happens. I like that example, though, because that's real. And you know the differential in those costs. So we can use that. That's a good one. I'm going to put that feather on my cap and use that on my next argument for people to do it now. <laughs> I was like, I'm sure if you spend some time on, on, uh, on the internet searching, you could probably find the, find the commercial. Yeah. I, I can see it running in my head. Actually, <laughs> which is, uh, kind of That's really funny. I remember though, that brand. <laughs> well, so then on the flip side, like as an, and kind of roping back in like the penalty stuff as an Amer as like a US based business with foreign operations, there are certain things that you have to do as a US business with your foreign staff to like make sure you're telling the government that you're doing things correctly. And then mm -hmm. also there are what I know there's oftentimes, you know, people have here heard like this ten thousand dollar penalty yes. for just not filing a form. Yes. And it's per form per year. So what's, you know, what's kind of, you know, the, the outbound. Yeah. So there, there are a number of forms that uh, whether it's a, 
corporation with a foreign subsidiary, a corporation with a foreign disregarded entity, or an individual that's a beneficiary of a foreign trust, or bank account, bank accounts. There's there's many different things. You know, it's all about transparency. The IRS wants to know everything that you have everywhere, regardless. And the forms are getting worse and more complex all the time. I just noticed the other day that there's now something called a K2 and a K3 that's going to be effective starting in 2020 for 2021 tax years. Combined, they're 42 pages. They're attachments, they're attachments to a Schedule K1 for all the international stuff that has to be reported to a partner. Like a, a partner, like a, a U, like a US like partner. Like a foreign partner? Oh, a, like a US, US partner needs a all US this stuff partner. too? Yes. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's getting out of control, uh, but the information is necessary. Like, for example, like all the guilty information that relates to that partner would be listed on that Schedule K-2 uh, so that their tax advisor can do what they need to do. There's right. a lot of, there's a lack of uniformity as to how partnerships and S-corporations are reporting all that stuff to their Well, my perception of that is it's sloppy. And it's done a lot by the regional firms where they don't have a strong multi-state from my perspective. So you don't even know what the apportionment factor should be when you get a partnership K-1. I mean, you don't really know what to do with it. So then you don't do anything with it, which means that partnership income is not being properly reported across the nation where it's earned. It's not that you don't know what to do with it. It's like, you know, when we, cause we have some clients that are investors and partnerships and we'll get K-1s and it's like, and we'll push back and ask for apportionment. They're like, well, we're a partner in another partnership and we didn't get their part. We didn't get their apportionment. So we didn't flow it through. And so it's like, well, I'm, I'm going to file a return. I'm going to do the best I can, but I'm kind of backing into this so that I can at least be the most compliant I can be, but it's kind of like garbage in garbage out. But so that's good to know though, for 2021, what you're telling me is we need to start charging our partnerships more and more money. Because <laughs> more work's going to be needed. Because there's going to be all this reporting, reporting stuff similar to what like the 199A that came out of like tax reform and like the, I mean, I I play a Fed person on TV and not very well. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so just, you know, there's burdens on us. And did any of that come out of like tax reform or is that just an evolution of just businesses in general? It's mostly due to the tax reform and the, the and the regulations that followed that basically said if a partnership or an S corp owns a, a CFC, they're treated as aggregates, and you look through them to the people whoever owns those partnerships and S corps. They're considered the shareholders of the CFC, and so you have to flow all that information through to them so they can do what they need to do with the with the subpart F or the guilty, uh, or the foreign tax information that they might need to, you know, claim a foreign tax credit or something like that. So it's, I mean, yes, it's a lot of pages, but I think the information is necessary. And right now it's going in white paper statements. They're different depending on who you get it from. And it may be incomplete. You know, I just talked to somebody the other day. He's like, well, here's what we got from the partnership. I said, well, did you get this, 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 and this? No, we didn't get that. So, so now you know, and it's also they... September 12th and you're not going to, so. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and he, and his partner in the partnership was an S corp who had to put all that on the S corp return or 
K1s for the S-Corp shareholders. And then there's confusion about, oh, does this stuff flow through the actual partnership or S-Corp return? And the answer is it doesn't. Uh, it like hopscotches around that return and goes directly to the people who are the shareholders and the partners. You know, it's, so there's no basis adjustments for any of that foreign income or anything that's flowing through, unless of course the foreign stuff is check the box, then it's a whole different uh, regime altogether. But the penalties, and I'll get back to the penalties, the penalties can be severe. They can add up in a hurry. I had a client uh, last year that was looking at $2.4 million of penalties. For just they not had, filing a form? For, well, he was dual citizen, U.S. and another country. He left the U.S. five years previously and was advised he didn't have to file a U.S. return anymore. And so he had you know, three CFCs, foreign bank accounts, galore. Uh, and the, uh, some of the penalties are a percentage of the value of those accounts if you didn't file certain forms. So, I mean, it added up to like $2.4 million. And so we had to go into one of the programs that are available to abate penalties. So one of them is the streamlined uh, compliance uh, filing. Uh, if you go back and file three years uh, and pay interest and tax, they'll waive the penalties. Or if you have a situation where you don't have any unreported income, but you didn't file these forms for whatever reason, as long as it wasn't you know, willful, then you can go back six years and all the penalties will be waived forever. But if you don't do anything, which is always one of the options, the statutes never run, the penalties never go away, and they just keep adding up. And then when do you start being compliant? As soon as you're compliant once, it kind of alerts the IRS that you should have been compliant all along. So that's why these programs are important. And uh, we, we like to have our clients use them uh, to kind of, you know, get clean, if you will. So they're kind of the, the IRS equivalent of a voluntary disclosure agreement with states where, you know, you come forward and say, hey, whoopsies, my bad. Can I fix this? And there's some benefit to doing that. Yeah, it's, it's similar to that. Only it's not an agreement per se. It will, it's just sort of like, yeah, if you do it, we'll accept it. And then no penalties? No penalties. Ooh. If they accept it though. And is it is it anonymous or is it full disclosure? It's not, anon it's not anonymous. Okay, so you're uh, what in. What you do is you, <laughs> whatever you, whatever you didn't file that you should have filed, you attach a reasonable cause statement okay. as to why you didn't file it. You attach that to an amended federal tax return and you send it into a particular location. I think it's Austin, Texas. And I've never heard a client even get a response from doing that, but they don't, they don't have to worry about the but penalties. But it's like no, no, like no response is your response that you're good kind of sort of maybe? No, nothing, nothing like that. Nothing happens. Huh. You just do it so that you're in and you can comply. Yes. And then the penalties but will be abated. Like, right. But if you're contacted by the IRS for audit, you can't do that program. So it's important to do it before you get audited. Right. Yes. We have that same situation, the voluntary disclosure. Although a couple states do allow you to ca that, to be caught. With Miss Michigan, speaking of which, if they get you, they'll automatically let you participate in the VDA program, which is kind of nice of them, actually. <laughs> but that's not common. Or at least they have in the, pa they have in the past. I, we've, we've found very, you know, the states are constantly changing well, I was going to say it's their like, administrative rule. They can do whatever the heck they want. So they can change their mind next week for all we know. So, yeah. yeah. Right. So 
So the other area where companies I find aren't necessarily compliant is if they, they're in a treaty country, they have some activity going on in the U.S. that doesn't rise to the level of a permanent establishment in the treaty. Maybe they don't have a fixed office or place of business. They don't have any people on the ground that are signing contracts on a regular and habitual basis to bind the company. And they're not like involved in, a, in an installation project of any length of time. And that would pretty much say, unless you're from Canada, those are the factors that you would look at uh, to determine if uh, you have a permanent establishment. But even if you don't have one, you still have to file a return and claim the treaty benefits. Right. And, you know, that I'm sure is not going on a vast majority of the time. Correct. Well, we have that same issue with Public Law 6272. What, 50 states, 40-something have an income tax-based tax. And what we find is a lot of people think, oh, you have PLA 6272 because you have a you sell a thing, therefore you're exempt under this federal law, but you have to affirmatively file something in some states to assert that position. Otherwise, you don't have it. So you don't toll your statute. So there's a lot, I think there's a lot of mis- perception out there that you don't have to file anything when nothing is due, but something is due to assert that you don't owe any money, basically is my, is the way I argue it. But there is a misperception out there about the complexities of that. Um, and they, and then a lot of people just don't do it. Their advisors tell them they don't have to do it. So then the poor business owner is counting on their advisor and they didn't know that particular, yeah, per- proclivity. Well, right. And, you know, because circling back, you know, if we take this full circle, you know, why, you know, Judy, you and I have a, you know, have a job and have been, you know, successful outside of the big four, same with Brian, is that smaller CPA firms outside the large firms don't have, you know, resources and experts like us. And so, you know, kind of in closing with that, Brian, what is there, you know, maybe one thing that we didn't talk about that you think is, you know, the most important thing for people to know about what you do? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. One I hadn't thought about, but uh, I think what's most important is, uh, it's to their benefit, is that if someone is utilizing WTP advisors for international tax services, they're going to get big four quality international tax advice and transfer pricing advice uh, at a fraction of the cost. Uh, But it's going to keep them out of trouble. And staying out of trouble is invaluable, in my opinion. And so, you know, we're in the business of keeping people out of trouble. Uh, We also are in the business of helping people, uh, you know, optimize and maximize their opportunities. And I think if you're just, if someone, if a business isn't getting the proper advice, that, you know, it's like walking through a minefield. And uh, we try to help people avoid the landmines. Right. That's awesome. Well, Brian, thank you today for your time and enlightening us and kind of being in a weird niche <laughs> with us when it comes to tax. And so we really appreciate it. And Judy, again, thank you for being here. And I think that's it. So... We will, you know, catch you next time. So thank you again for joining the Saltivation Podcast and we'll talk to you later. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. 
You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.